Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. You may have heard this statistic. The U.S. is the only developed nation in the world without a federally mandated paid leave policy for families. Surprised? It's not like it hasn't come up before. It's a talking point on the presidential campaign trail. And so far, a handful of states have their own paid leave laws. New York is the latest state to mandate paid medical and family leave, joining New Jersey, Rhode Island, and California. Supporters of legislation here in Connecticut had hopes this would be the year after the bill won bipartisan supporting committee. So why did it die? Here to tell us more is Catherine Bailey. She's legal and public policy director at Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund, also co-chair of the campaign for paid family leave. Catherine joins me in studio. Welcome to where we live. Thank you. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you. And also on the phone with us is State Senator Beth Bai, who represents Connecticut's 5th Senate District, including Bloomfield, Burlington, Farmington, and West Hartford. Hi, Senator Bai. Hi, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. So I want to start with Catherine. First off, tell us about this particular bill that was before the legislature this past session. What was it going to do for the state? Well, there is a federal uh, medical leave act that um, that applies to people who need time off of work to take care of their own illness, to care for a family member, or for the birth or adoption of a new baby. And while it was a great first step, the law hasn't quite kept up with the modern needs of families. Uh, one, because a lot of people don't uh, are not eligible to use it. It only applies to large companies. Um, and even if they are eligible, many people don't use it because they just can't afford to go without a paycheck. Uh, it's not realistic for most families. Um, so this bill would have set up a comprehensive paid family and medical leave system in Connecticut uh, that's a self-funded program that would allow up to 12 weeks for, for those reasons um, at 100 percent of a person's pay. So you mentioned the federal FMLA. So yes. if it's 10 employees or more, if someone needs to take time for a new baby or if they have someone in their family who's ill, they could take up to 12 weeks, but that's unpaid time. Exactly. And, and the federal law applies to actually companies with 50 or more employees, and Connecticut's law is 75 or more. So there are a lot of people who are left out of that. When we talk about paid leave, explain, um, I was talking to you before the show started, and you're a new mom. Congratulations. Thank you. Explain to people um, who may not be in this position yet um, what it's like when you have a new child and you need to plan for what you do when you want to spend that very important time that experts say it's very important to have that bonding time with your child. How do you cobble the time together um, so that you're not going to get hit with uh, a deficit in a, in a few months because you want to spend time with your new baby? It's very hard for people, and a, a really troubling statistic came out recently that one in four new mothers goes back to work uh, two weeks after the birth of their child. That's just incomprehensible as a new mother myself um, and speaking to you, a person with two children. Um, you know, a, a new mother's body really isn't ready. Um, there's a need to be with that child. And I think Senator Bai will probably speak to that a bit more. Um, she has been a strong advocate for the need 
um, for children's brain health, and also things like breastfeeding, which is very you know recommended uh, by the Academy of Pediatrics to happen for a year, and yet we're sending women back only two weeks after birth. How are they supposed to engage in that relationship? Um, it's just not realistic. You know, I was lucky enough to have uh, about three months off of work and keep my job, even though I work for a small employer. But that's not always the case. And frankly, it shouldn't. I shouldn't have to say that I'm lucky to have my job protected and be out for three months when that's the standard in other countries. We're just not keeping up here in the U.S. Senator Bai, I wanted to turn to you. Um, you shared a personal story during the, legisla- the legislative session um, in front of the committee that was looking at um, to whether to approve this paid leave bill. Um, how did that impact you as a, a mother, a young mother, um, when you uh, had your child and had to go back to work? Well, I mean, I remember it so clearly because I had to pick between having a job or staying at home with the newborn who had been born three weeks early and then six weeks back to work, she was, you know, gestationally, she would have only been three weeks old. And I was told, you know, either come back or you don't have a job. And uh, it was felt like an impossible choice. Um, I was lucky enough that uh, there was really high, I had really high quality infant care. But uh, it was a, it was a decision that no mother should have to make. um, And uh, was really wrenching for my family at the time. So talk so. talk about um, why this bill was able to receive bipartisan supporting committee, and then it seemed to have died um, in the Senate before the session ended. You know, I mean, I really felt like it should have passed last year, and last year we ended up with a study. And then this year um, it passed out of committee, and I felt like there was broad support. Um, and uh, ultimately I think the budget situation took over, and the um, concerns out there around businesses in the state and how they would react uh, took over on the inside among legislators that uh, this was just not the year to do it. Um, That was frustrating to many of us who were supporters, but you have to have the votes to pass it ultimately, and you've got to get the bill called to get the votes. And so um, it did not make it through this year. But I do think uh, because of the economic situation we were facing, a lot of these really important policies did not make it through because of all the concerns around the state budget. Can, can we talk specifically about how this would have worked had it passed and become law? So if we, if Connecticut were to have a paid family and medical leave act, um, who would be paying into this pool and um, how would emplo- um, employees be able to take that time when they need it? Um, I'll, I'll go to you first, Senator. Okay. Well, uh, the way it was structured in Connecticut was that the employees would fully fund it. I mean, in Massachusetts, there was a bill where where companies would fund it, much like you know a combination of workman's comp and unemployment, where 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 both people pay the employer and the employee. Um, Catherine can talk mo- more to those specifics, but none of this was meant to be a tax on business. It would be a fund that was established, and um, a small percentage of uh, people's pay would go in to support this, and then there would be a um, system set up to distribute the funds if people needed to use the paid family medical leave funds. Um, and Catherine, so um, Senator Bai had mentioned the business community. They saw this as another mandate on on businesses in the state. Right. I mean, you know, one important thing, as Senator Bai mentioned, that it is a self-funded program that was proposed. So employees would 
uh, pay in a very small percent. It's one half of one percent, so less than one um, of their wages, a few dollars a week uh, to receive this benefit. And so I think, you know, concerns from the business community either, you know, A, didn't really understand the concept that was proposed here. Um, The federal bill that's pending does ask for both employer and employee contribution, um, but this one is only funded by employees. And I think it also comes from a slightly outdated mode of thinking that anything good for employees is necessarily bad for employers. That's just not true. Um, And we see that in a couple of ways. You know, one is that employers across the country, big companies like Netflix and Google and Adobe, have done the research. They've run the numbers and expanded their parental leave policies because they've figured out it's good for business. Um, They can attract the top talent that way. It increases productivity. It boosts morale. It lowers turnover costs. So there's a strong business case to do this. And so in fact, if I could just chime in on that. I did talk to some business owners with this, but you already offered this. So why are you against it? And it really surprised me what their answer was. Their answer was, yes, I offer it. And I want that to be a competitive advantage so I can get the best employees. So I've never viewed it that way. It's like, well, our company is choosing to do this mm-hmm. to recruit good employees. So it is fascinating that even the argument against it was that this is good for business. Right. And I and that's and that's exactly why this is good for small businesses. Exactly. Because the big businesses are able to offer this benefit to their employees to attract the top talent. But we've talked to a lot of small businesses that have said, "Listen, we try our best to take care of our employees. We want to offer this benefit and we simply can't afford to, afford to do it." So, you know, help us to offer this to our employees. Um, And for that reason, we've had more than a dozen small businesses sign on to our campaign saying, we agree with this and we think it's good for business. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about paid family and medical leave and why uh, the legislation died um, in the legislative session. Um, On the phone is Senator Beth Bayh. And I wanted to go back to you, Senator Bayh. Um, Oftentimes when we think about paid family leave, people assume and think that it's um, something that only new mothers would want to use. But this would be a program that anyone could use. Um, And I think oftentimes um, when people are the sole caregivers for their elderly parents, this is something that um, could also benefit them. Yes. And and I'm glad you mentioned that because definitely some of the strongest supporters of this legislation, um, one of the strongest groups was AARP. And they were out in force saying this is important for them, this is important for their children and their grandchildren. And they were such wonderful allies, um, Catherine and, and the Working Families, I mean, the group that's put together the Paid Family Medical Leave um, Coalition has reached across ages. And I think that uh, AARP makes a really strong case because many people are caring for family members at both ends of the spectrum. Um, so I do think there is that misunderstanding. But, but in my mind, I'm a developmental psychologist, so... To me, the idea that as a nation, we are not taking care of babies' brains, we are not protecting them with a policy like this that pays off in spades later on is just hard, really hard to understand because we now know with hard science how vulnerable the brain is at the very beginning of life. And we know how important attachment is uh, for executive function and those skills that help children be successful in school. So, you know, I always make that case, you know, from my perspective as a public policymaker, 
it's the best investment we could make as a nation. And in the case of Connecticut, we're just saying individuals can make their own investment with a half of 1% uh, to fund such a leave. What do you think is going to um, help this culture shift in this country? Because I know families who look at, with envy, at European nations who allow both mothers and fathers to take up to, you know, up to a year of paid time with their new children. Um, but that's not something that's valued, doesn't appear mm-hmm. that's valued in this country. What, what can we do to change that? That's such a good question. <laughs> something I've been working on for 25 years. And I think we've really, if you look at the progress we've made with preschool, where 20 years ago there was no sense that the public had any role to play in preschool, we've made great strides as a nation. And now as we've sort of turn that corner on universal pre-K where virtually Democrats, Republicans, everyone believes it's a good thing. Um, now we're looking at the earlier years as we understand brain research. And so I think it's going to take the same kind of effort it's taken with preschool to show some of the outcomes. Um, but I believe that we'll get there as a nation because, I mean, the investments we make in our young children pay off for a long time. And um, I just taught a public policy class at Trinity last semester. And after studying everything, the students uh, determined that the best investment has been zero to three in terms of return on investment, in terms of home visiting, paid family leave, the combination of factors that protect those young brains. So I think we'll get there, and conversations like today are part of how we'll do that. And Catherine, you wanted to add? Sure. You know, another thing that I think is impacting the culture shift is millennials. They are uh, increasingly making up the workforce. I think in a decade, will be 75% of the workforce. That's huge. And they have sort of a different set of core values than baby boomers do when it comes to work choices and family choices. They are increasingly demanding that these kinds of policies be part of their workplace. Um, And there was an interesting Harvard Business Journal uh, review that came out recently saying 38% of millennials said not only would they leave the state, but they would leave the country for better policies like this. Um, So if we want to attract those workers and keep the best talent in the workforce, uh, companies and the state will kind of have to look at what we're doing to keep them here. And I think if I can uh, jump in on that, I mean, I think critical for Connecticut's future is attracting and keeping young people here. And these kind of policies are really important to young people. And I have five between the ages of 19 and, and 27 now, and they are really have a very different sense of work-life balance. And when they're looking for jobs, they really are looking at those kinds of things. So don't underestimate the power of policies like this to help us with uh, keeping young people in the state. Mm -hmm. And Senator Bayh, I wanted to end with you. Um, You mentioned the the tough budget year. The General Assembly just passed, uh, I think, almost $20 billion budget. Uh, We could see um, up to 2,500 layoffs, um, service cuts. Residents are finally starting to feel and understand how this budget's going to impact them and the services that they've come to rely on. How do you make something like this happen in this kind of of budget uh, reality? Well, I think, you know, public policy is complex, and um, nothing in this bill is asking to spend state resources. It's saying we need a system that the state can help set up. I think Connecticut residents are used to high-quality services, and that was part of, that's part of what we've seen the past three years is this battle as revenues have been declining. Uh, you have a state where we have used to taking care of people with disabilities, mental health, health needs um, at a high level. 
and I think the legislature has fought to protect those still, even in these tough times. So um, we are a state that values humans. We're number one in the Human Development Index, um, meaning that we as a state take the best care of our humans, and I don't think that's going to change. We're just, I think, trying to work smarter, and uh, we've just had to make really difficult cuts, and nobody, you know, Nobody likes that, but that's just where we are in terms of keeping our expenses in line with our revenue. I want to thank State Senator Beth Bayh for joining Where We Live. Also, Catherine Bailey, Legal and Public Policy Director at Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund. She's also co-chair of the Campaign for Paid Family Leave. Thanks so much for your time. Thank, Thank you, you for having us, Lucy. So what do you do if you need to take time off from work to care for a new baby or family member and you don't have paid sick or vacation days to rely on? Coming up, we'll hear how some families have found a unique way to lengthen their maternity or paternity leave. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We were talking about paid family and medical leave and why Connecticut hasn't seen success passing a law requiring the program here. So what do new parents do if they want to afford to take time off from work and spend it with their newborns, time that experts say is vital for developing strong bonds between infants and their parents? Kathleen Flory joins me by phone. She's editor-in-chief of Downey's Magazine and founder of My Baby Bond, a website for parents looking to crowdfund their maternity or paternity leave. Kathleen, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks for having me. Crowdfunding has uh, really taken off in the last few years, but this is the first time that I've heard of, of people asking for donations so that they could spend more time home with their new child. Tell me where the idea came from. Yeah, so uh, I have two small children. Uh, I had my first baby uh, and had a few weeks of paid leave and then took three months unpaid. And the second time around, uh, I was really the breadwinner in my family uh, and could only take about, you know, cobbles the other six weeks uh, of sick time and uh, paid leave. And, um, you know, uh, it was difficult. <laughs> it was really difficult. And I am one of the lucky ones. So during that time, after my son was born, uh, I felt quite passionate that I needed to do something to help people. Because if I was struggling this much with a job that I love, a great company, a supportive partner, uh, my health, you know, I, I can't imagine what women all over this country are going to. Women and, and men, families and babies. Uh, so I decided um, it, it so happened that my partner, Noah, sent out an email on behalf of his friend who was about to become a father, and neither of them had um, paid leave. And so he asked for people to donate, and he got $1,500 in two weeks uh, with the email. And so when he did that, it kind of I, I decided that maybe we could scale that idea. And focus it, try to change the language around um, crowdfunding. Instead of giving money, what, what you're really giving to these families is time. And I really think that's the most important thing. You know, you don't need the onesies that they're going to grow out of in two weeks. You don't need all that stuff, but people will spend thousands and thousands of dollars on baby gifts when women have three weeks off. Uh, so I just was hoping to start the site to, you know, bring attention to it and try to help any number of families who, um, you know, just need something uh, during that time. So how long has My Baby Bond been up? 
It's been up for about a year. Uh, my co-founder and I work full-time, and we're moms, so uh, it, it's a passion project and an advocacy site uh, primarily. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's gotten uh, a lot of attention, and um, I think hopefully it uh, just can reinforce this idea that, um, you know, we still need the village, and, and crowdfunding in a way is the virtual village these days. Uh, and and uh, we're fairly desperate for it. Is there any stigma? I mean, do people ridicule this idea of of people asking for donations so that you can spend time with your family? I mean, what has been the response, and how do you respond oh, to critics? Yeah. yeah, no, there's, I mean, that's why we made the site, is because um, the stigma is huge. Uh, and frankly, it's larger for women. Um, and I, we, we have this hunch uh, based on our uh, site that people are more willing to give to paternity leave hmm. um, because I think they view it as a little more novel. Um, so that's been an interesting <laughs> insight. Um, but yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's a really desperate situation <laughs> is all I can say. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned you're obviously a working mom. And did you ever feel like you would have to uh, put aside your career so that you had the necessary time to raise your family? Every morning. <laughs> Every morning. Uh, no, you know, it's something I think we all battle no matter what you do. Um, but our society just makes it so hard. Uh, and, and we don't have the support of that village. And, um, you know, I think I'm lucky enough that I might possibly have that choice of not working, but most people don't have that. And and most people have to leave their two-week-old in a daycare situation that is unimaginable, you know? So um, I, I'm lucky to even have the possibility of not working. Um, but, you know, I do love my job, and I have a great partner, and, um, you know, uh, so it's, it's worked out. Um, but, uh, yes, I think all mothers face that, don't we? <laughs> That's true. And I wanted to ask what something you had said earlier about uh, people are more receptive to uh, donating mm -hmm. because when they think about paternity leave, it's a novel idea. So do you mm -hmm. find that, um, you know, prospective dads are, are using this site more than, than moms? Well, so what, what I find interesting is that first, um, the, the first uh, experiment that we based it on was a male asking for a male. Uh, and I, I um, have, have seen that that is people are a bit more sympathetic to that, uh, and you know that I think that says it all. <laughs> you know, the stigma is still really around um, um, women, uh, and until we have uh, the kinds of policies that your your guests were talking about, um, women primarily are going to continue to be um, discriminated against in, in the workplace uh, because, you know, it's, it's, it's great to have paternity leave. It's absolutely important. Um, but, you know, women birth the babies, and there's a physical element to giving birth that, you know, it's just it's, it's so essential. Uh, so I, I really think it's tied into uh, kind of the value of women in the workplace. And, you know, it's changed so much. The demographics of the work workplace now there are a lot more working moms that are breadwinners and we're going to get there um but in the meantime i think you will need sites like mybabybond.com to to fill any amount of the gap 
Do you feel like My Baby Bond has um, encouraged other uh, sites as well or other um, people where people are actually thinking, well, instead of asking for, you know, this new stroller and um, these cute mm-hmm. baby clothes, that maybe I can actually ask for something that we could, um, our families could really use after the baby's born? That's our hope is, you know, to, to try to add to the conversation. I think conversations like this really are the way that you start changing that stigma. Um, and, and that's what we hope our site can do is, is give anyone who sees it maybe that confidence to say, oh, you know, that is really what I want, especially for second babies. You don't need anything, um, you know. So uh, I, I hope that that's what the site can do is spark some, some confidence in people to ask, for not what they want, but like what what the baby and the parents and the family and our society needs. Obviously, this isn't a money making endeavor for you. Is it <laughs> no. your hope that um, this this crowdfunding site will really encourage more states uh, to have this conversation? One day, my baby bond may be irrelevant. Oh, that's the that was our goal. <laughs> we want to make sure we're not in existence in five years, hopefully. <laughs> uh, that which is you know an unorthodox way of going about a website. Um, but absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to be involved in introducing um, some legislation here in Maine because, uh, like your caller said, um, we need young people to move to Maine. We need millennials and families, uh, and frankly, we have one of you know we're the oldest state in the nation, so. You know, pretty soon I'm going to be taking care of my parents as well, and and that's going to you know that's going to be challenging too. So, it's not just about um, babies; um, it's really about taking care of our families uh, and and all of us in our society. So, uh, yes, I do hope that uh, I, I'm, I'm confident that we will get there, um, probably sooner rather than later. Um, but I, I hope that I can be actively involved and that this site can inspire other other states to take a look at this. I want to thank Kathleen Flory. She's editor-in-chief of Down East Magazine and founder of My Baby Bond. It's a website for parents looking to crowdfund their maternity or paternity leave. We'll be back after a short break. Kathleen, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This is Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, school is almost out for the summer. We'll sit down with the 2016 National Teacher of the Year, Waterbury educator Johanna Hayes. Also, two upperclassmen from CPBN's Journalism and Media Academy will reflect on their educational experience and tell us about their goals for the future. My next guest, Barbara Katz Rothman, is a professor of sociology and public health at the City University of New York. She's also the author of a new book, which draws some unexpected parallels between the food and birth movements. It's called A Bun in the Oven, How the Food and Birth Movements Resist Industrialization. Barbara joins us today from NPR's studios in Midtown Manhattan. Barbara Katz Rothman, thanks so much for being on the program. 
Thank you. Can you describe um, how you came upon the idea for this book? Well, I've been working in the birth world, dealing with issues around home birth and midwives and then other issues having to do with procreation for pretty much my whole career. And a colleague, John Deutsch, who at that time was at CUNY and is now at Drexel University, came upon a very small piece I had done years ago about food and asked me to join in this kind of growing food studies movement. And I thought, oh, okay, that'll be an interesting change. And so I went to some meetings and stuff. And then there's a lovely, funny thing that happens in life that you find the same thing over again. You learn something that you've known. And that's kind of what happened. I was sitting at a food studies meeting, and I was listening to a group of artisanal food producers, a baker who had found a bag of wheat in the back of a barn in the back of nowhere somewhere of a kind of grain that had grown extinct by this point. And he got the wheat cloned, and he started growing it and made bread out of it. And there was a a brewery guy, and he was running his own small brewery. And there was a cheesemaker and so on. And they were talking about their work. And I listened to them, and they kept talking about what really matters. And it's not just the product. It's the process and the relationships and this kind of respect for process. And I was sitting there half laughing and half kind of crying at the beauty of it. They sounded exactly like midwives. And I I just, oh, my God, I got I goosebumps thinking about the moment um, and started following that thought through. So one of the things that, that struck me is they're trying to find common ground. And, and one of them is saying, yes, we're, we're into the natural. We don't want to use all this artificial stuff. We're not all about high tech. And the guy who had cloned the wheat said, um, excuse me? And they all kind of laughed. And then the person who was doing the cheese work said, uh, guys, you have no idea what's going on in the cheese world these days. And I thought, yeah, I've been at midwifery meetings. And and somebody starts talking about we're natural and we're high, not high tech. And one of them says, excuse me, I'm working in an HIV clinic. Don't kid yourself. There's a lot of high tech going on here. And then somebody else in this food movement, food meeting trying to find the common ground said, yeah, well, you know, it's not like we're working with a cast of thousands. We've got, you know, small businesses. We don't have like 100 employees. And the brewer said, well, I'm sorry, guys, but really when you count the bottlers and the shippers, I think I have a payroll of over 100. And and it went on like that. And I, I thought of all the times midwives have said things like, you know, it's not like we're working with strangers. And one of the midwives says, you know what, I'm working in a in a hospital. The door opens. There's a 15-year-old crying kid in labor. Don't tell me I'm not her midwife because we never met before. And, and they get trying to find where this common ground was. And it's an elusive kind of common ground. It has something to do with respect for process and, and people and how the world works. It has something to do with the rejection of standardization and industrialization and just putting everything through a factory. But it is hard to name the common ground. The one real difference I saw, I will say, between the midwives and the food producers 
every time I've seen this panel like that, those issues among midwives, it ends with hugging. <laughs> no hugging among the food people. <laughs> they manage to reach their agreement without hugging. So we're here in Connecticut, and most people are familiar when you think about the food movement, you think about the uh, the growing farmers' markets, the uh, people are buying more uh, CSAs um, with their local farms. We hear more events from the farm to table. Um, so people are familiar with the food movement, but when we talk about the birth movement, considering your experience in the birth movement, can you tell the person who doesn't quite understand what that means? Well, like the food movement, it's meant many different things over time. Mostly what I'm talking about now in the birth movement is an attempt to deindustrialize, to stop doing everything according to some factory model where you go into an institution that's run on eight-hour shifts, your labor better fit into that shift. They used to bring babies to mothers on four-hour intervals, which clearly is not about baby physiology, but is twice per shift. The the attempt to, I, I want to say, return to an, a model of care, of actually attentive care, the way a food producer is doing attentive care to the growth, to the process of cooking, to all the stages of it, paying attention not to some abstract system of a factory, but to this particular situation. So in the birth world, it's midwives and doulas in and out of hospitals. It's the home birth movement. It's birth centers. It's an attempt to bring birth back to an interaction between a woman, her body, her baby, and supportive care. So when people um, think of the birth movement, I mean, it's hard, I think, I think, for some people to wrap their minds around. There was a time where all births happened outside of a hospital, and today that's not the case. What is it, less than 1% of people are having home births. So, um, in you're, the U.S. In the it's U.S. very low in the U.S., yeah. And so talk a little bit about, as you had that the idea of the book dawn on you at this uh, conference in Montreal, how you then went about comparing the histories of the food movement and the birth movement in the United States. Both food and birth used to be outside of factories, right? So you didn't go into a hospital, but you didn't get silver cup sliced bread and a package in the supermarket either. So things were done by people who were working outside of a factory model. And what you saw was that with industrialization, food and birth both moved into institutions. With food, it's interesting to just go back historically. They are at around the same time in different countries, different moments and some variation. But basically around the early 1900s, birth and food began to be moved into institutional management. And one of the things that happened in both is a kind of de-skilling. People who used to know how to do things and teach other people didn't know it anymore. You didn't see it happening. Um, the, the berries arrived in packages. You didn't go pick them. And our disconnect between what we would call the natural, you know, the berry growing off the branch, and the package of wrapped berries in a package in a supermarket, or better yet, you know, raspberry jello, which never even saw a raspberry, that kind of disconnect um, entered into our lives. And that model of the factory became an aspirational model. If you look at kitchens um, 
in the and again this is like a vague broad period but 1900 through to the 50s the development of white tile kitchens to look like laboratories and factories um, that the notion of cleanliness is in white tile and that's really interesting because of course we've had our big epidemics of um, industrial infections of foodborne disease happening through industrialized food, not through, you know, your backyard garden. And the same thing with hospitals. When they first moved birth into the hospitals, we saw incredible ramp-up of infection. That whole notion of of puerperal fever, of women dying of infections in great numbers, was at the beginning of moving them into um, hospital settings. It didn't happen in your home. In your home, you have some resilience to the bacteria that you live with, whether it's in food or in birth. Um, Those bacteria don't become life-threatening. When you start moving everybody into one place, and notably in the hospital, you move the sick people in with the birthing people, you start seeing infection rates. So there were these fascinating parallels of the aspiration of the factory that you would that white bread became elite bread. Fancy people had white bread. Poor people ate that brown stuff with a whole bran stuff in it that was ugly and dirty. And rich people had sliced white bread out of packages. And poor people gave birth in their homes. Poor them. Rich people went into the hospital. And so it became aspirational. By the 1950s, post-World War II, you started to see people questioning it at both levels. You started to see people saying, you call this bread, you call this food, this tasteless, mass-produced stuff, and you call this birth, you lock some woman away from anybody who cares about her, put a band on her arm so they'll know who she is, and and send her in there. And we started to have all this notion of these fears of switched babies, that that somehow you, you move people into these factories, and you began to have a movement against it. We're talking to Barbara Katz Rothman, author of her new book, A Bun in the Oven, How the Food and Birth Movements Resist Industrialization. So, Barbara, then we move into the 1970s, uh, the counterculture movement, and talk a little bit about how uh, more people started to embrace moving away from industrialization and and a search for meaning and authenticity both in the, the food movement and the birth movement. Yeah, well, you found some really, I mean, uh, to me, I, I kind of had a general feel of this, but in actually researching it, I'd have these funny laugh out loud, oh, look at that. So probably the best known midwife in the United States of this alternative movement to the 70s is Ina Mae Gaskin. And she started out in San Francisco, and you have this basic hippie caravan of school, you know, painted school buses moving to where they settled in Tennessee and what was called the farm. And so you had a group of women and men um, of childbearing age traveling across country, and surprise, they had some babies along the way. And they learned how to provide care. They learned how to catch babies. They found a GP who worked with them a little bit and helped them about some stuff, but they learned how to do it, and they developed an alternative approach to thinking about birth. Um, in San Francisco, same time, you had Alice Waters saying, hey, wait a minute, you call this food? Let's talk. Let's let's talk about what's special and unique to our area and stop thinking about the factory. So that kind of rejection of mass-produced knowledge as much as anything else, you know, this notion 
that how do we know things? And I'm a sociologist of knowledge. I mean, I totally came intellectually out of being just rivet by the idea that how do you know what you know? Where does knowledge come from? And in the 70s, people were really questioning that. Question authority was like a a mantra. I sent my kids to school the first day wearing question authority T-shirts. And in both birth and in food, people started questioning authority. They started questioning studies produced by huge food makers. They started questioning studies produced by medical authorities and hospitals. Docs could tell you how long it takes for what's called second stage to push the baby out. But they could tell you that because they measured it on women who were strapped flat on their back with their legs strapped in the air in stirrups. I guess it's interesting to know how long it takes to push a baby out if you're in that position, but why would you be in that position? It's a crazy position to try to push a baby out. So the, the authority, they also told you how long it took for milk to come in. And they said it's three days between the time of the birth and the time the woman has milk in her breasts. Therefore, there's no reason to bring the baby to the mother in the first 24 to 48 hours because she doesn't have milk. Well, yeah, if you separate the baby from the mother for 24 to 48 hours, it does take about three days before she produces milk. What people saw when they were having babies at home and nobody took the baby away to some box in a nursery for a day, and you just held the baby and let it suckle when it wanted to suckle, you had milk in about 24 hours. So the medical facts were right, but the conditions were insane. Um, And so that question authority in the food and the birth world were very similar in the 70s with some nice similar results about rethinking knowledge. In your book, you pose the question if the food movement has been more successful than the birth movement. At the same time, you also bring into account that people might look at both of these movements and say, you know, this is elitist. Who has time to think about, um, you know, where the food is coming from is for people who are hungry every day and, you know, they just want to be able to eat or the people who may not have um, good health care. And so the choice of going to the hospital and being able to have a baby that's born healthy, I mean, that's what their primary goal and priority is, not thinking about bringing it home and having certain people around you uh, during this time. So, I mean, how do you address that in your book about, you know, is this an elitist conversation? I think both movements are wrestling with how to how to think about that. Both movements really, really care about the basics of access and health. So it's not that the food people think, well, the best food would be produced by a factory, but if you can't afford it, well, I guess, poor you, you have to grow your own. They're saying, really, everybody should have access to the kind of food that we're calling elite. Um, and the birth people are saying... It's not that the healthiest place to have a baby is in a hospital. They're saying in an ideal situation, every woman would have a safe home. She'd have a home that was clean and she had some space and some control. She had the services she needed. Um, If she, for some reason, needed some medical assistance, you could move her to a hospital if you needed to. That seems to happen in countries that have good, solid home birth movements. Maybe one in... 10 times or less, you actually need to transfer somebody. So they're not saying we don't want to have any of these facilities available. They're saying we want everybody to have the best care. 
And one of the things that I found really interesting, you know, the, I think of the food movement as successful because we all know about CSAs and stuff. The food people, every time I present any of this to the food people, they get kind of like, we are not successful. The majority of Americans are eating horrible food or non-food. They're eating mass-produced, artificial everything. Look at the diet. Look at the diabetes rates. I mean, they're saying we're not successful. And I'm saying, yeah, but you've caught the public eye. So is there the possibility of creating change when you have the public eye that way. And in the food movement, you see some of it. It starts to look bad when the free lunch for the poor kids in the inner city neighborhoods is looking like white flour food. I mean, looking like jello. It's looking like artificially produced. It's like, why aren't they getting nice food? In the birth movement, we're trying to get to the same place where you would say, why is that woman in this institutional setting where there's higher risks of infection. A recent Johns Hopkins study just said that the third leading cause of death in America is medical mistakes. So even if it's not the third leading cause, you know, it's up there. Why put somebody in a place where they're in a factory where they're not getting individual personal attention and the risk of error increases so dramatically? The risk of infection is definitionally higher. We're not talking just about, ooh, how pretty your birth is because the music you like was playing. We're talking about having healthy babies, just like we're talking about having healthy diets. Can we talk a little bit about how American hospitals are now offering birthing centers as a, you mentioned your book, as a compromise to, um, you know, the the one route which has always been, you know, Maybe possibly pushing women to getting cesareans, and and the other the other side was you know having home births. So now hospitals have birthing centers where women can go and they feel a little more at home if they're not comfortable with the home birth model. I mean, does that show that the, maybe the birth movement is making some inroads here in the United States if if women are are seeking other options beyond one or the other? Maybe, but if you look at what most hospitals are presenting. It kind of looks like what the food industry does. You present, a, you know, the packaged sauce that came straight out of the factory in a pretty glass jar that has a picture of a grandma cooking on it. Um, you kind of package, literally package it, to look m- more homemade, more natural, more authentic, more whatever you want to call it. In the birth world, I've gone to so many hospitals where they have a birth room, but nobody's actually been in it in a long time because everybody's risked out. Um, This woman's too old. This one's too young. Um, High risk has gotten to be enormous. Years ago, it used to be the fifth and sixth baby. Nobody's having fifth and sixth babies, so they start talking about third baby. Um, No babies. You haven't had a baby before. That's a risk. You're too young, you're too old. I mean, la, 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 la. So nobody's really eligible for it. You have what a lot of people in the birth world have called interior decorating obstetrics. You make the room look prettier. You make it more attractive. You do provide a little more privacy. So the notion of women laboring separated by flimsy curtains, that's not as common at all anymore in the States. Um, so you have more privacy, but you don't have any control. The door opens. You don't know who's coming in. At home, the door opens, you know who's coming in. So the notion of actually being in control of the space, you can make that sound silly and flimsy, but birth is an activity. 
So the institutionalization isn't just some silly little thing um, that can be fixed with putting flowered wallpaper and hanging a plant on the IV pole and, you know, calling it a birth room instead of a delivery room. It's really about controlling and owning your own space where you're birthing. I'm speaking with Barbara Katz-Rothman. Her new book is A Bun in the Oven, How the Food and Birth Movements Resist Industrialization. So you've done this research. You have this book out. You know, where do we go from here? Well, I want people to think. Options are available for people who really put some time into thinking in many places. Not everywhere. You can be living in parts of the U.S. where there's pretty much nothing available to you. But most people can find a midwife if they want one. They can find alternative birth centers that are not just hospital rooms decorated pretty. They can find someone to come and help them with a home birth. It can be done. There are people working to make it available throughout the U.S. In Connecticut and New York and in this region of the world, we're lucky. There are lots of alternatives. Um, I want people to be thinking about it. If we start thinking differently, we will open ourselves up to different ways of dealing with pregnancy, with birth, with new babies, um, with new parents. And, and I think it's really about rethinking um, at, at, a, at a larger level, not just, you know, a couple of us fighting in some corner somewhere, but getting people to rethink this at some other level. I think that will enable the kind of change that people in both the birth and the food movement have been working for for so long. I've been speaking with Barbara Katz-Rothman, professor of sociology and public health at City University of New York. Her new book is A Bun in the Oven, How the Food and Birth Movements Resist Industrialization. Barbara, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. Executive producer is Katie Tularski. You can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.